Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Over the course of 13 feature films, he examined a diverse range of topics and themes, from the glories and dangers of technology... I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. ...to the moral conflicts inherent in war. Whose side do you want, son? Our side, sir. How about getting with the program? He investigated the duality of man with unblinking honesty... <laughs> ...with a fierce intelligence... He embraced the ambiguous, revealing deeper layers of truth with every viewing of his work. You've always been the caretaker. His films were of their time, ahead of their time, and timeless. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops. In this series, we will examine the works of Stanley Kubrick, works that will continue to challenge, fascinate, and exhilarate audiences for as long as there are movies. This is the Kubrick series. Episode 5 Red Rum. In the 1970s, Few films reflected the chaos, uncertainty, and disillusionment of the time with more visceral clarity than those in the horror genre. Keep away! The sour is mine! To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. The horror renaissance extended beyond the cinema and into the world of publishing. And leading that charge was an up-and-coming writer named Stephen King. King's first two books, Carrie and Salem's Lot, announced the arrival of a new and exciting voice in American horror. Both were also adapted into highly successful films, the former for the big screen, and the latter as a TV miniseries. King's third book, The Shining, first published in 1977, became his first bestseller and firmly established his place as the preeminent Gothic writer of the modern age. During this period of time, Kubrick was obsessively searching for his next project, he had been approached to direct several films since the release of his previous effort, Barry Lyndon, Network, and Exorcist II among them. But he hadn't yet stumbled upon that magical material that spoke to him. The Shining was provided to him by Warner Brothers executive and close friend, John Calley. Kubrick biographer, Vincent Labruto. The first thing he would do is say, okay, I want to do a horror film. His uh, secretary was in the other room, and she would hear, you know, he would start a book, and then after a period of time, boom, 
it would go against the wall. She would hear him throw it. Mm. So she gathered when he was reading The Shining because nothing hit the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, you know, uh, he he loved The Shining. It's difficult to pinpoint what it was in The Shining that Kubrick fell in love with, particularly since so much of King's novel was excised and altered for the film. But Kubrick claimed that he responded most to the central mechanics of the plot and the hybrid of the psychological and the supernatural and how one might explain the other. Author of Stephen King, America's Storyteller, and Hollywood Stephen King, Tony Magistrali. One thing that strikes me is that King, as well as Kubrick, have left us a legacy that is is a kind of that are kind of cultural reference points. When King found out that Stanley Kubrick was going to adapt the first bestseller that he'd published, he was ecstatic. And I think that enthusiasm was so intense that King could only lose that enthusiasm. He could only fall from the height that he was at. Mm-hmm. In terms of his, in terms of his impression of Kubrick, and 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 this this fall was precipitated by Kubrick's rejection of a screenplay that King wrote for his novel. As he had so often done in his career, Kubrick sought out an outside collaborator to assist him in fleshing out the material into screenplay form. For The Shining, that writer was Diane Johnson a novelist whose 1974 book The Shadow Knows had impressed Kubrick for its gothic horror sensibilities. Film analyst John Crisco. He adapted both Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon on his own, and those were the first two times he had done that. And this time he goes back to having a collaborator who's a novelist and a woman. And to me, the anchor of the film is Shelley Duvall, more than Nicholson, especially emotionally. And so to bring in a female writer is a fantastic notion to flesh out the script and this kind of stuff. This would be Johnson's first attempt at a screenplay. For three months, the two worked side by side at his estate, crafting a blueprint that satisfied Kubrick's mandates for the material, that it be plausible without the use of cheap tricks and completely scary. Kubrick's longtime assistant, Tony Fruin. Well, I, th- I think he, he thought, I mean, you know, 90% of, the, of the, uh, the job was really cast incorrectly. You don't get Anthony Quinn in and then, you know, try to, to uh, get him to act like Cary Grant, right? <laughs> Kubrick chose a cast led by Jack Nicholson, an actor he had long admired. <laughs> For the role of Wendy... Kubrick strayed from the book's conception of a blonde model wife and cast highly accomplished actress Shelley Duvall. Yeah, this whole place is such an enormous maze. I feel like I'll have to leave a trail of breadcrumbs every time I come in. And after an extensive search, young newcomer Danny Lloyd was chosen to fill the shoes of Danny Torrance. Drallon, are you scared of this place? It is said that Kubrick flirted with the idea of shooting The Shining in the States, but eventually he determined that he would be better served by filming on sound stages in England, where massive sets were constructed to depict the very authentic environment of the Overlook Hotel. Kubrick explained his approach to the set design 
with acclaimed journalist Michel Samon upon the film's release. Well, first of all, we decided that um, since it was a supernatural story, that we didn't want to have any kind of impressionistic sets of, uh, you know, an art director's idea of what a what a hotel full of ghosts would look like. We wanted it to look like a real hotel. And this also was carried forward into the lighting and everything else. It always seemed to me that the guide for this sort of thing was the way Kafka writes, as opposed to the films that have been made about Kafka. Kafka writes in a very simple, almost journalistic style, and all the films have these bizarre uh, sets and strange-looking things and so forth. And none of those Kafka films, as far as I'm concerned, have ever really worked. Um, Kafka should be done, you know, like a very simple, straightforward, like it's real. Mm-hmm. Once we decided that it should be uh, look as realistic as possible, he went all over America photographing different hotels. And then, to make it absolutely correct, all these photographs were then taken by the draftsman, and every single detail was copied in proportion in the right way. Perfect. So that... Um, you know, we didn't fall into the trap, what I think is a trap, of, you know, the sort of, the, mm-hmm. you know, haunted hotel look. Kubrick was always known as a demanding, exacting director. But The Shining cemented his reputation with a long and grueling filming schedule and a swarm of endless takes, sometimes exceeding over 80 for a single shot. Garrett Brown experienced this firsthand. Brown had just invented a revolutionary device that would forever alter the visual expression of the film camera, the Steadicam. It allowed the operator complete freedom of motion, without the burden of dolly tracks, to create free-floating and graceful gliding movement. The invention had been tested sparingly in a few films prior, but The Shining would utilize the Steadicam for the majority of its visual content. The original Steadicam demo consisted of 30 impossible shots that we made in and around Philadelphia to try and sell this notion in Hollywood. And I took that demo, which included, incidentally, uh, a shot running down the art museum steps and back up again, chasing my then-girlfriend, now wife, Ellen. took that film to Cinema Products Corporation and to Panavision in LA and ended up with a deal almost immediately from Cinema Products. And since Ed DiGiulio, the head of that company, had recently supplied the F.7 lenses to Stanley for Barry Lyndon to shoot the candlelight sequences, the ultra-fast lenses, right? He was on speaking terms with Stanley and sent him a film, 35mm film copy of my demo. And Kubrick wired back a um, what has become legendary around our parts, Telex, saying that your you know demon your demo film on the mystery stabilizer is spectacular. You can count on me as a customer. Went on and on about it. He he actually startled us by saying, "I direct your attention to a part of the demo where a skilled counterintelligence photo observer can." detect the shadow of the object on the ground and deduce certain things about it. And of course, of course, we were shocked. We rushed to the screening room and played it, and sure enough, there was about 18 frames of shadow that we had to cut out to not give away how it was done. 
And uh, then he went. Then he went on to say, "Is there a minimum height at which it can be used?" I'm guessing at this point that he had the the Shining in galleys and was contemplating filming it. And I think saw ahead amazingly that he would it would be better to have lens heights closer to the ground. So in response to that, we invented a variation on Steadicam, which is the camera flipped upside down, which we called all these years low mode. Mm-hmm. A hell of a lot of the shining ended up in low mode. Um, but I think he understood a couple of things by then, that, that it would be impossible for him to make the floors and the overlook all good enough for dolly-quality moves. That's a hell of an enterprise. Yeah. Uh, you know, even leveling rail, when you have absolutely precise rail, involves a lot of wooden wedges and so on. And when they do dolly shots on on floor, typically, even if it's very carefully made, they usually lay down overlapping sheets of plywood at least to you know, stop the because the dolly will show up any variation in the terrain, right? And my mm-hmm. stuff, of course, is immune to that. So I think he had a strong incentive in any, any event to chase us and did. But I had the rig in London at Film 77, and we had a we brought it over to. Um, Borum Wood to Elstree Studios, and Stanley had already commenced building sets and saw it and saw a demonstration of low mode, which we had worked up by then, mm-hmm. and asked if I wanted to do it. And um, I was pretty um, intrigued by that at that point and began to try and make that happen. And I'm glad I did. I actually really learned how to operate the thing on that film. We never, I don't think we almost very seldom did more than a shot or two in a day. And sometimes a shot would occupy several days. So, but it wasn't that the shot was evolving so much. It's just that we were climbing deeper and deeper into the possibilities, you know. Not, the operating got better and better. Although I think, you know, by any standard, take five was good and take 14 was perfect. But it, mm-hmm. you know, as you go on to take 50 and 70, you realize, hey, if my foot is, two inches closer to this wall, I can just see this, and so on and so on. So there's a slight evolution in that regard. The lighting was fixed, the wardrobe was fixed, the anything held on with gaffer's tape would start to be falling off by take 50, you know. And the actors, you know, delivered every nuance from apathy to hysteria so that he had it in the can for his editing. And I think that's what he really wanted. He wanted to be able to have a... Um, almost Horn and Hardart automat selection of every possible range of thespian emotion. The film's extensive use of Brown's invention was just another example of how Kubrick cherished the opportunity to push the technical and the visual boundaries of the medium. His relationship with cinematographer John Alcott was essential in accomplishing these feats. The Shining was the fourth collaboration for Kubrick and Alcott, but it would also be their last, as Alcott would die of heart failure in 1986 at the untimely age of 55. Kubrick's longtime assistant and actor, Leon Vitale. With John Alcott was a very uh, quietly spoken man. I mean, he really was. I never saw him get mad once or lose his you know, lose his temper or, or lose his marbles, as we say in England, you know. Danny had, you know, 
a deep respect for his intellect is the wrong word because it makes it sound like it's a real mental process although John would work out those those you know mental processes lighting has a lot to do with you know, calculation of course it does you know in, in all its forms and and Stanley had a lot of respect for that and he, and he had a lot of respect for the fact that John was very even tempered and, and calm when we were setting up and sometimes you know we get as far as starting to shoot a scene after maybe a day or two days of lighting tests and rigging and God knows what and Stanley would just say this doesn't look right and start again from scratch and and John there wasn't a flicker of anything <laughs> crossed his face it was just okay then we're starting again and it was John also who who you know came up with this design for what Aeroflex produced which was a tube that you could fit any lens to the end of. So instead of those little, you know, stubby viewfinders that a lot of directors used to use and still do, I guess, you know, Stanley had a, a tube uh, that he could attach any lens to, and that's how he looked around to find his first shot in any scene, you know. And it was John who who came up with that idea and and designed it, and Aeroflex produced it, you know, specifically for Stanley. Um, so, you know, John had a deep understanding of, of, of what he was there for and what he was doing. I never heard as, even a sort of partially angry word of dissent or disagreement between them. It would always be a discussion or Stanley would say, well, you know, uh, jack up, you know, those, you know, those wall lights and, you know, even if the light meter said, you know, 5.6, you know, uh, you know, Stanley would say, no, we'll put them up more because, you know, I don't believe it. John would say, that's what he wants. <laughs> that's what we do. He never said, well, no, light meter says this and we should do it like that. He, w he was very fluid and open and, and you know, a, a really nice man. On the conversations, everybody, just mouth them. Don't don't speak and don't. Joe, Don't nod your heads when you're talking. Just talk naturally to each other. Okay, right. Let's have a big clearance in the set, then, please. Okay, number one. Only people who should be there. Surprisingly, Kubrick allowed his daughter Vivian to film a documentary chronicling the making of the film. Perhaps what's most notable from this unprecedented view from behind the curtain is what we observe from Kubrick's diverse working methods with his two lead actors. With Nicholson, he's patient and jovial. And with Shelley Duvall, he's oftentimes stern and controlling. Assistant Director Brian W. Cook. Jack was an absolute joy to work with. I mean, he really is. He and Dustin Hoffman of the actors I'd work with right up there as two of the top six that I've come across, mm. you know, to both to work with generous people, nice guys, uh, absolutely brilliant artists, um, pleasure to work with. I've been lucky enough to do three films with Jack. But yeah, he was terrific, Jack, and uh, of course for the first month they were like sort of snakes, really, uh, Stanley and Jack whittling around, and then once we sorted the hours that Jack was going to work out, we were fine, <laughs> and then we got on with it. <laughs> Jack was no fool. Yeah. I used to say to Tom, really, you should have checked with Jack about what it's like working with us, you know, because he wouldn't have spent any of his nonsense being here till 10 o'clock at night. Mm. 
no, Jack's uh, he he sussed it all out pretty quickly, and um, yeah, he's a very cool operator. Action, Shelley. Oh, come on. What do you mean, roll Two video? Seconds. We're killing ourselves out here, and you're going to be ready. I am, too. I'm standing right by the door. Should we play mood music? No, I can't Yeah, but when you came out like this, you said, just... We're sitting there because they say, wait yeah. a minute, okay. and then you say yeah. on the radio, But when you go. do it, you've got to look desperate, Shelley. You're just wasting everybody's time there. I can't even get this well, thing. The question that always comes up with The Shining was the different approach that Kubrick had with Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. It was difficult for Shelley because, you know, half the time she's crying and, you know, we used to have to adopt the approach that Stanley, myself and one of my assistants gave her a really hard time <laughs> and my other assistant, Michael Stevenson, and Doug Twitty, who was the production manager, sort of the line producer, used to be really fatherly to her. <laughs> that was our approach with Shelley. <laughs> Of course, she did get hard. I mean, Jack used to go over to Hot 7 every night, and we used to work on Michelle at 10 o'clock, you know. Mm -hmm. But she was good, Shelley, but it was a very tough role for her. Yeah. You know, she used to sort of argue. Stanley was quite amazing, really. He used to say to her, she used to ask him, well, you know, typical of Stanley, he had an answer for everybody. She says to him, what, you know, what do you want me to do, and all that, that type of dialogue you get from some people. And you say, look, Shelley, you're the actress. Do something brilliant. If it hadn't been for that you know, volley of ideas and sometimes butting of heads together, it wouldn't have come out as good as it did. And it also helps get the emotion up and the concentration up because it builds up anger, actually, and you, you get more out of yourself. And he knew that, and he knew he was getting more out of me by doing that. So it was sort of like a game. She was, she was very good in the film. And the little boy was fabulous. She, yeah. uh, he did oh, yeah. a terrific job. But that was Leon, actually, who had a tremendous amount to do with that. He looked after him, worked with him all the time, used to bring him in each day. Kubrick's longtime assistant and actor, Leon Vitale. 4,000 children I saw. Oh, um, wow. And it, it, was, um, it started off with uh, almost three, well, no, no, two months in Chicago, Two and a half months, no, two months in, in Denver, Colorado, that's where I started. Two and a half months in Chicago, and then the rest of the time was in Kansas City, Missouri. You know, Midwest. You right. wanted the Midwest child because that was, would be a neutral, a neutral, uh, dialect, neutral accent. Uh, you know, Shelley and Jack had totally different kind of, uh, voice patterns, so, um, you know, this, this would kind of tie them together. Uh, so the Midwest was the target. So they sent out you know, TV ads and newspaper ads um, wherever they could to get encourage people to write into the local Warner offices. And uh, there were 4,000 children to look at and interview. And probably, I'd say, about 500 of those I kind of video tested or got back um, for some kind of exercise. And the reason why uh, he... He sent me to do that was simply because we'd had a talk and I was telling him about how interested I'd been, I'd become in, in the mechanics of filmmaking, which I'd known nothing about. I was an innocent, you know, when I went to Barry Lyndon. And, you know, I started noticing things when I worked on Barry Lyndon and he started explaining things. 
so you know he understood that I I really had a desire to work in in production and so he sent me to do that because I could improvise with children so it wasn't just ever going to be if we got down to the point where a, a child was interesting and looked like you know something that that might work you know it wouldn't be just cold script readings and trying to make sense of dialogue you know these were in in some cases they were not even four years old and so four to about seven years old was the range of, of ages that I was seeing so it meant I could improvise with them some of the situations that were in the actual story and and see how they could you know work it react with it and play with it and understand what was actually happening so it was better for him to do it that way than to have you know what I would call cold casting, even in the way that, you know, it worked. He did it on Barry Lyndon, which was better than the way he used to do it before. This was uh, another way, another approach, which uh, he thought would pay dividends, and it did. They say, you think you're smart, don't you? You know? Well, you know, and I admit, I admit... There, I do think I am. I thought my, my job was going to end after, you know, I'd finished that process. Uh, but he just called me and said, I, I don't know what you think you're doing, you know, when this is finished. But, you know, you're coming to England because I'm going to need you to you know, be with Danny and stay with Danny and, and coach with Danny. And from there, he kind of, you know, whenever I, Danny wasn't a part of any, you know, period of shooting, um, he'd have me working with the, the DP or have me looking for, you know, casting for the, the small peripheral roles, nothing important but the smaller peripheral roles. Mm -hmm. um, he had me doing dozens of different jobs, you know, and co coaching, you know, other actors like Scatman, for instance, you know, uh, and working with them. So, um, you know, it was it was a really, you know, well, just a fantastic experience to sort of start working in areas I'd never worked in before. But with Danny, of course, he had wonderful parents, absolutely fantastic parents, um, who, you know, as hard as it got, remember for them, you know, there were 50, it was 15 months from when they left their home in Peoria to when they got back there, finally. <laughs> you know, there were those little times when you know, it was like, God, how long is it going to go on? And, uh, you know, and I, quite understandably. And, um, but, you know, 99% of the time, they were just wonderful. And they never forced themselves, you know, to be, they, you know, they understood when we said, it's better that you're not on set, for instance, because if you're on set and he knows it, he'll always be referring to you in some mm -hmm. way. His mind may not be focused the way we need it. So, they were great. They were fantastic. And they took it in turns to bring in, you know, when we got them to the studio, they took it in turns to, you know, they'd be sitting in their dressing room, in Dan's dressing room all day, you know, uh, or, you know, or taking a walk around the studios or doing anything not to get bored stiff, I'm sure. Um, and there were days when Danny was on standby but never really called. So it was days that they had to stay at home in case he was. You know, that was all part and parcel of it, and I became, you know, a part of, of that world, of their world. How did you find working with this little guy, Danny Lloyd, and was it enjoyable, was it? It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Just like, I 
my son. If you see tears, it will be tears of joy. Because I thank the Lord I'm here and was able to work with such beautiful people. If you mention The Shining, you know, one of the, you know, things that people always say, oh, yes, you know, the bike going over the, the rug and the floor and the rug and the floor. And they think about those iconic kind of shots and atmospheres that Stanley created. Or they talk about when Jack went mad, you know. Mm-hmm. They very rarely give the credit that Shelley was due and is due for what she did in that film. She was quite aware that she was being put through the mill. She understood that. I mean, she didn't always feel good about it. And why would why would she? It was a constant pressure for six months, you know, from the moment that we filmed the first kind of moment when she was feeling uncertain and, and you know, she understood something was seriously wrong, which probably was... You know, when Danny wanders in with all those bruises on his neck after Jack's had his nightmare, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. From that point on, you know, she had to pitch it at such a highly charged emotional level. And how do you do that on a day-by-day basis without going totally mad for for a period of six months? I mean, so Stanley kind of seized on that, and it wasn't particularly attractive or or feel good in any way you know he was quite aware of of what he was doing but you know he felt the need to do it and Shelley was Shelley understood understood that she said I think she says in the in the documentary I know it's a means to an end but you know Mm -hmm. it wasn't a a pleasant experience for her whatsoever so that's a really good kind of illustration and I would give you another one that contrasts even further from Jack and Shelley, um, would be Scatman, who, you know, was a man who could remember every word of every song he'd ever sung since the 30s, but sometimes found it difficult to remember, you know, five lines of dialogue, you know, in a take. And so, you know, there's this, you know, I think in the Guinness Book of Records or, or some film kind of, you know, you know, funny things that happened in films, you know, there's this reference to how many takes he did on set in in the kitchen with, with Danny, for instance, or inside, you know, the food stores where he has to list off all these, you know, everything he's got and how many of it, like 35 bags of this and 25 bags of that and 15 this and 14 that, you know, which were difficult things for any actor to remember in a real constant flow, you know, break or hesitation. And so I was Scatman's dialogue coach, and and what we understood was that maybe for the first or second or third takes he'd be okay. I mean, not what Stanley wanted in in you know in emotional reach, but the dialogue was there. But the longer you went on, the more uncertain Scatman would get. He was getting on. He was, you know, sixty eight years old. <laughs> you know, filmed those scenes. And, you know, and he, then, then sometimes, sadly, you know, his, his confidence would, would go simply because Stanley was asking him to keep it going and repeat it and repeat it and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. But to his credit, and fantastic, you see, he did. He went with that. So Stanley was incredibly patient with him, very softly spoken, very gently guiding him and, and telling him, no, you, you do it again, it's not quite right, do it again, it's not quite right. 
And what you get in that scene between Danny and Scatman at the kitchen table is you're looking at Scatman as if he's one of the most accomplished screen actors of all time. He's so beautifully orchestrated and so wonderfully pitched that, that it just comes out so beautifully, you know? You know, every one of those actors, and Danny was another one where, you know, he'd come on so prepared because, you know, I videoed all our rehearsals and Danny said, you know, get him a little more like this or a little more like that or I don't like what you're doing with him here or I, I like what you're doing with him there. So Danny was prepared so Danny could be very patient with him, soft and gentle with him. So you're absolutely right. The way he dealt with each actor was absolutely different from how he dealt with another one. If, uh, of anything, you know, within the, the sort of Kubrick um, uh, storytelling was this sense of dread and anticipation that he... Um, was able to capture so perfectly in that film. Director of Cloverfield and Let Me In, Matt Reeves. At the center of it was was a family. It should should be you know the source of that uh, of the of the horror in that story is this family that descends into horror as the as the father starts to really lose it. And the, there's there's nothing more primal or terrifying than this idea of a father turning on his family and you know threatening to kill his wife and son mm. um, there's something so dark and primal about that um, and he tells that story in such a uh, uh, you know w with such patience um, and with true dread I mean you sit there you know from the beginning right from the beginning with those shots and the music right at the beginning yeah. that this is not going in a good direction <laughs> right from the start film analyst John Crisco. There's such a collage of instruments and sound and uh, you know, echoes, heartbeats, all these kind of things that lend to the size of the place and how much mm -hmm. it dwarfs the people inside of it. So you have three different kinds of music or sound throughout the film. You have these synthesizer pieces by Wendy Carlos at the beginning. There's also bits of her things that she did throw this in because it's her stuff that synthesized heartbeats or uh, synthesized like dissonant sounds of you know pots and pans or this kind of thing. But then you have Kubrick's fantastic, fantastic, always memorable in every film choices of, of uh, you know uh, pre-written or, or source music. And so first we have the classical stuff and a wide variety from you know like Leggetti. Um, we have Shostakovich, uh, we have Kachaturian, and these are all very eclectic, uh, experimental, classical music uh, that completely fit what's being depicted, but hadn't really been heard much before. And in fact, you know, a lot of people don't even think it's uh, score or, or, or music. They think it's like background sound effects, which is an amazing complement uh, to the film itself. And then we have the third, my favorites, which are these 1920s swing music. And I love them. As was the case with most Kubrick films upon their initial release, most critics were unimpressed with The Shining while Jack Kroll of Time Magazine called it the first epic horror film. Most critics fell into the camp of disapproval led by Pauline Kael, 
when she complained that clearly Stanley Kubrick isn't primarily interested in the horror film as scary fun. Critic at TonyMacklin.net, Tony Macklin. He may well be the top director for film criticism, for the, the, the learning how to watch films, because his films almost always are rejected and negated by critics on their initial reading, on their initial watching. They go to the film with their expectations, and when he doesn't meet their expectations, they say he's a failure. No, it's them who has failed because people don't like what they don't understand. And I think in The Shining, the the final picture, uh, when it, we see Jack on in a picture on the wall, when uh, it was the July 4th ball of 1921, and we see the Jack from 1921 in that picture. And most critics have just said, it, it, it doesn't mean anything. But to me, the more I thought about it, the more I considered it and pondered it, it really is a statement about where this country has come. And once it got on that wavelength, the American dream has been corrupted. The American dream is made into cartoons. The American dream has been has been wasted. Uh, and then when I read Pauline Kael's review, um, she said... When she reviewed The Shining, and she was one, she was a major critical voice, maybe the major critic in the 60s and 70s for the New York magazine. And she hated Kubrick films. Yes, generally. she didn't like that. <laughs> but I think it was because she went so often unable to understand him as he, as he had to be understood. I read her review recently, and she uses the word seems. It seems to me... She used that word nine different times, and she said that picture that I was just saying really was the key to me or the keystone or the thing that reverberated. She said, quote, the picture seems not to make any sense. It just seems like a dumb finish. Well, no, it's, <laughs> it, it seems like the critic doesn't get it, or that Kale saw it and didn't understand it, and therefore rejected it. And I think that's that's the test of Kubrick, that we see so many reviewers on first looking at the film saying, I don't like this. That's not what I thought it would be. It's, it's self-indulgent. It goes somewhere unexpected. It's no good. No, it means that they failed as a reviewer. Author Jeffrey Cox. I remember when the film came out, uh, very famous and, and very good film reviewer, Stanley Kaufman of the New Republic, he mm -hmm. hated that, hated The Shining. And he said, you know, Kubrick is just a failed filmmaker because he doesn't know how to make a horror film. And Kaufman said, you can see that when in the one really good scary moment they have when Jack is sneaking up on Wendy when she's looking through his manuscript and she realizes that <laughs> something is very, very wrong. Kaufman said, terrible. Kubrick could have scared us, but instead he shows Jack sneaking up and he kills the entire moment. Well, mm -hmm. Kaufman didn't understand what Kubrick was after. He didn't want us to be scared. He wanted us to see those people on the screen scared so that we could identify with them and say, no, this is, 
this is really real. This isn't just a means of making me jump and making me feel like I've spent my $3 well in seeing this film, but rather it's to open my mind and my heart to these people because when Jack sneaks up on Wendy and scares the hell out of her and she screams and turn around, turns around clutching her bat, you really feel for her. You really think, oh, my gosh, this poor woman. It's not about you getting a thrill in the, in the theater audience. It's about her as a human being who herself is discovering something terrible about her world. And I think yeah. that's a much more valuable thing. And I think people over time appreciate that more than just a good scare. Many critics and audience members were also angered that the film did not reflect the tone or the themes of the book. Film analyst John Crisco. You can't criticize a film for not being a book. Film is, is not book, book is not film. And so... If you're coming in from the perspective of someone who's read the book, loves it, or, or loves Stephen King, you're very apt to be disappointed. Author Randy Rasmussen. I suspect Kubrick regarded these source novels, or short story in the case of 2001, as basically raw material that he could start with and do what he wanted to. That I, I don't think that's being disrespectful to a source. Uh, the source exists by itself. It doesn't need you know, Kubrick or his, his adaptations to have its own integrity. Uh, although, obviously, some authors probably didn't appreciate the kind of tampering that, that Kubrick did, but he does what many of his characters do, uh, which is to take something and turn it into something of their own. The differences between King's book and Kubrick's cinematic adaptation are substantial. Less emphasis on the supernatural, more ambiguity all around. A change of the room number from 217 to 237. The death of the Holleran character. In the book, he is the savior of Wendy and Danny. In the film, he is killed within a minute of entering the hotel. And perhaps most notably, the insertion of American Indian motifs, including a history of the hotel's construction on Indian land. Author Tony Magistrali. My God, the hotel's built on an Indian burial ground. You know, and, and that, that's it. I mean, you know, that starts it off. And then, you, then you've got these wonderful appropriations of, of, of Navajo culture that just festoon the hotel. Right. You know, every, every, everywhere from the sculpture to the wall hangings to the borders that are on. And, of course, you know, you, you, you've got a black man being essentially murdered on top of an Indian, uh, on top of an Indian design on the floor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've got, this, you've got this kind of, I mean, you want to talk about holocausts. You know, if it's possible to make the plural for Holocaust, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of Holocaust scholars say there's only one Holocaust. But if you, if you can, if you can expand that definition of the Holocaust to include what, what, what the white man did to the Native American and what the white man did to the African American in the history of this, uh, of this country, then you've got an interesting metaphor that's at work there with Halloran being murdered on top of this Indian design that's been appropriated by the white men who own the hotel. The film's harshest critic was the man who originated the property, Stephen King. Over the years, he blasted the film and its director, claiming Kubrick had no understanding or appreciation of the horror genre. 
King was so incensed that he set out to produce another version of the film based on his own original screenplay, a project that eventually came to fruition as a TV miniseries in the 90s. Uh, King worked very hard, and this is one of the reasons why he was so upset. You, you do understand that he, he was so upset with Kubrick's version and has said so many negative things over time that the only way Kubrick would give him back the rights to his own novel so he could do the 1999 miniseries on ABC was if he, if he promised, if he signed a contract that promised that he would never talk about The Shining in public again. Really? <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. That, that, that's, that's how vociferous King's criticism has been over the years of Kubrick's film. Regardless of the widespread dismissals from the critical establishment, The Shining performed well at the box office and went on to become one of 1980's top-grossing films. But many years would pass before the majority of the fresh critical thinking on the film began to emerge, as passionate Kubrick files seemed more eager than ever to explore the depths of the film's enduring mysteries. Author of Stanley Kubrick, A Narrative and Stylistic Analysis, Mario Falsetto. You, you think you're kind of going along in the film and you're, kind of, you're understanding things and then suddenly I'm... You know, with one cut, you kind of have to rethink everything, you know, and say, oh, no, I, I, I really don't get this, or what does this mean, you know, now. I thought I was really following everything properly, and and it's, just, it's kind of always sort of reminding us that, um, that there's still a lot going on that we don't know uh, in a Kubrick film, uh, that, that we haven't quite figured everything out yet. Author. Randy Rasmussen. He, he can lead you in certain directions, but I don't think he wants to force-feed you conclusions. You're not quite sure. Is there any kind of supernatural agent at work here or not? Author, Tony Magistrali. Yeah, I mean, look, look, at, look at the way in which the ghosts appear in The Shining. Even, let, let, let's, let's, take, let, let's, let's analyze this for just a couple of minutes. The ghosts appear in The Shining almost invariably reflected through mirror imagery. Mm -hmm. Every time the hotel speaks to Jack, it's primarily through a mirror. Even the images, like think of the image of that bathroom in room 237, where Jack walks in and sees this beautiful woman who turns into the old hag. Where does that come through? It comes through the mirror. So there is this sense, I mean, one could make the argument from a filmic interpreta interpretation that there is the sense that every time Jack encounters the spirits of the hotel, he's actually encountering a, 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 um, an interior vision of himself, an interior version of himself. Critic. Keith Ulick. Do you, do you think it's a movie of, about the supernatural, or do you, or do you think that it's his subconscious? It is all that and more, and that's why, and that's why it's great, because uh, it unsettles you to the point that you don't know quite where these specters are coming from. You know, again, it's like uh, the the way he does the ghosts. You know, it's kind of like they just. They just appear and they're there. 
you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like they, they, they don't like materialize with effects, with obvious effects. And, you know, Kubrick might have even been able, you know, like if you look at the miniseries of The Shining, it's kind of like, you know, you have Danny's little, Danny's, Danny's, uh, um, talk, you know, the way he's like, Tony. Danny's, Danny's, uh, spirit guide, Tony, you know, in the miniseries is like this floating, older version of, of Danny, um, of Danny himself in glasses. And, you know, you don't find that out to the end that it's his older, the older version of himself talking to the younger version of himself, but it looks cheesy on screen. Um, but, uh, you know, the way Kubrick does it, it's just like Danny is, is, uh, is Danny's finger just moving and him doing that little voice. Now! That's how a child would kind of talk, and that's maybe how a ghost, I believe a ghost would come, you know, to, to, to him in that way. It's like, and it makes sense in that particular world, and then the way Jack Torrance's ghosts come to him is just like, they're there, and they're corporeal, and they feel real, and they can open doors. You know, I mean, how does Jack get out of the, the right. you know, the, the refrigerator? Right. It's like, Grady lets him out, but how? Or is he thinking Grady is let, you don't know. You just hear Grady on the other side, and somehow the door is open. And it, and it yeah. makes sense in this context that the door is open. And I would just say as another example, you know, not to poo-poo like digital effects or something. It's like, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Pro- Alex Proyas' film Dark City, which has a lot of digital effects. And it's just like the way Roger Ebert talks about that film on the commentary track, you know, when he's talking about with the mind ray that is emanating from uh, Rufus Sewell's head, He's like, you know, this is what I picture a mind ray would be like. And I agree with Ebert in this case because in the context of this world, that effect makes sense. You know, it, it's just like, it, it, for whatever reason, that effect looks right to me. So it's just, it's kind of a matter of, does this effect look right, you know, in a way. And so the way Kubrick does it is just very, you know, low, um, low tech, which is just, you know, lighting cues and, um, you know, and, and having good actors doing the right thing. So the guy who plays uh, Grady, you know, is very unsettling because he's, you know, he starts out very polite and then he starts spouting racist rhetoric and it's like, and you feel like it's connected to Jack Torrance in a way. And then like even that weird shot, which I still don't know what to make of, it's so unsettling. Uh, the guy in the dog costume giving the blowjob to the, to the, to the other guy in the room. It's like, what the fuck is that? I still don't know what <laughs> yeah. that is. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it, it's just like, and why, and and Wendy's seeing it, and it's kind of like, and as I think about it now, okay, if you take it as like Jack's conscious, it's this weird sexual fantasy that makes absolutely no sense, really, uh, because a lot of times, you know, sexual fantasies don't make sense. They kind of skip a beat, like you're, you know, it's like a record player skipping, and and it's kind of like, but if you imagine it as kind of like a wife stumbling upon her husband's dirty laundry, you know, in a sense, his sexual fantasy all of a sudden, then it, then it, then there is a sense, a sense to it. So it's kind of like the Overlook Hotel is absorbing Jack and absorbing his subconscious as, of course, and, and that's the, the key to the, the final image of the movie, I think, is that the hotel absorbs him because it is where he belongs, because he's always been the caretaker. He is, you know, it's like, he goes to the hotel and he goes crazy, but in going crazy, he discovers the place he was always meant to be, 
So, you know, this is another way in which that move, another level on which that movie is working. Kubrick makes it into something more like a call home, you know, an evolution. It's another evolutionary step. And the evolutionary step for Jack Torrance is to go back home to where he belongs. And, but in doing that, he goes absolutely bonkers. Critic Glenn Kenny. And it's interesting, too, that people talk about whether or not the film is psychologically convincing. You know, well, look at Jack Nicholson. He's crazy from the beginning, you know. Um, well, is he? I mean, um, the fact that we're debating it in the first place uh, brings up a whole other uh, barrel of ambiguities. This is a guy who's got a lot of problems to begin with, you know. He, he doesn't start out as this nice guy who goes crazy. He's clearly uh, in a lot of danger right from the start. He's... Uh, rather half-heartedly stop drinking. Uh, we don't know whether he actually has any talent as a writer, but we do know that uh, he's not getting anywhere with it. He pretty clearly holds his wife in contempt. He doesn't understand his son. All of this is not a surprise. It's it's right there. His his insincerity of uh, my wife's a confirmed horror film buff. I mean, he he he. It's pretty. You know. He doesn't start off as this normal dude who then gets screwed up. He's a screwed up dude from the beginning, and uh, when you know, and he's sitting on a huge amount of rage and resentment. Film analyst John Crisco. When uh, uh, Jack and Wendy and Danny are driving up to the hotel for closing day, also a lot of people fail to notice that Jack is um, sarcastic condescending dad yes i'm hungry well you should have eaten your breakfast we'll get you something as soon as we get to the hotel okay okay mom hey wasn't it around here that the donner party got snowbound i think that was farther west in the sierras was the Donna party? They were a party of settlers in covered wagon times. They got snowbound one winter in the mountains. They had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. You mean they ate each other, huh? They had to, in order to survive. Jack, don't worry, Mom. I know all about cannibalism. I saw it on TV. See? It's okay. You saw it on the television. So a lot of people also miss that, like, when they get to the hotel, he starts being, you know, a jerk or whatever, especially with Wendy. And they falsely think, oh, it's the hotel's influence or it's the ghost's influence. No, he was like that before. He is stuck in a loveless marriage, which comes through his scene with Lloyd at the bar. But his feelings on all those counts are shown before they get to the hotel, so they're not influenced by that. He doesn't like his son or his wife. <laughs> he's trapped. Yeah. But also it's the fallacy in that he's he's going, oh, well, I'm not really a teacher. I'm a writer, and I'm looking forward to five months of peace. But in, in that, there's a fallacy in his logic because he doesn't realize, okay, there's going to be five months peace, but he's going to be locked up with his family for five months. <laughs> Film professor R. Barton Palmer. Well, I think I think it's quite it's quite true that uh, this is a film that is is all about creativity and the artist 
and that uh, Jack Torrance comes to represent a kind of dark side of the creative process uh, in in which the necessary solitude, selfishness, and self-centeredness of the artist uh, turns in on itself and uh, becomes not uh, something that is expressed in some kind of of object that he creates. In other words, Jack is a kind of anti-Kubrick. Kubrick is the figure that turns his obsessions and ideas into art, and Jack is Jack is absolutely blocked from doing that. And so, what you get in the film is a sort of nightmare version of of uh, the artist. And uh, I think it's a film that is, in many ways, very uh, very, very self-reflexive in that it uh, uh, takes into account uh, the process of, of creation that generates it and, and depicts the absence of that. So it's a film in which creativity is splashed all over the screen and yet, and yet the main character is someone who's, who's absolutely blocked. It's not, it's not that he has writer's block in the traditional sense is that is that what he discovers is that there's complete emptiness uh in inside him in terms of uh, what he has to say and and that that creates a space for all these other pathologies to connect mm-hmm. the ones that are in the hotel the ones that are in him uh and his murderous rage is the kind of uh interesting mixture of forces Internal and external. So I think I think what you get there is uh, uh, very very close to a kind of anti autobiography of of yeah. the artist uh, destroying himself, uh, and um, um, very fittingly uh, ending up in a maze from which he is unable to extricate himself yeah. and dying, not in some dramatic way. But by freezing to death in a kind of horrific image of of pointlessness and lack of energy and direction um, that is is just so appropriate to the way the story has been uh, told by Kubrick from the very beginning. And th- this is really what 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 King didn't like uh, didn't like this particular uh, negative twist. On uh, the Jack Torrance character, who in the novel is much more uh, controlled by the forces in the hotel, um, and is uh, more of a victim than a victimizer. Author Jeffrey Cox. Jack is frozen into that photograph at the end of The Shining because he's always there. The hotel will always be there. People like Jack, servants of evil, will always be available. They'll always be on call. They'll always be on staff. Author, Tony Magistrali. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, look at, look at that photograph again at the end that ends that film. And, 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 and there he is. Everybody's coupled up. Mm. You know, everybody's in, a, in formal attire. It's obviously the July 4th ball. And they're all, you know, they're all having, they're all in high spirits. But everybody's coupled up except Jack. And he's in the center of the fa- in the photograph with his arms outstretched, almost welcoming. You know, and here he here he is, the maitre d, you know, the party planner, the, you know, the guy who's going to lead the celebration. Right. But again, I think it's really interesting to contextualize 
that photograph in light of the series of, of, of moments all through the film that suggest that Jack wants desperately uh, to, to, uh, to, to join the, the ruling class of the hotel and not just be viewed as, you know, another version of Delbert Grady. And the hotel, the hotel is constantly seducing him to make him believe that that's possible. You know, Grady says to him when when he spills the avocado on him. Grady says to Grady says to him in the in the hotel bathroom, "You're the important one, sir. You're the important one." And 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 even even Lloyd the bartender says, "Your money's no good here." The orders from the house. And and you know Jack continually wants desperately to be part of that of that ruling class, and yet all through the film, every time the hotel seduces Jack with the promise of upward upward social mobility, they take it away from him. The beautiful woman turns into the hag. Mm-hmm. Delbert Grady humiliates him. In the in the in the locker room, looks like your wife has gotten the best of you. Perhaps we've underestimated her. Even in the red bathroom, that scene moves very clearly from one where Jack Torrance is in a position of dominance and power to one where Lloyd, uh, where where Delbert Grady takes over the position of power, and even the way the camera films it where where uh, Delbert Grady is is pictured in the frame of a mirror with the camera looking up at him while Jack is always crouching rat-like beneath him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. suggests again the differential in power critic Tony Macklin so if if you watch the red white and blue the colors that Kubrick uses in that film they're used over and over and over again American flag. There are Americans on the flag on the wall. There's an American flag on the table. Uh, Denny is wearing a, an Apollo shirt. There's a whole structure, but but it's also become the Roadrunner and uh, Wiley Coyote, and in a sense, I think maybe uh, Danny's the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote is uh, Jack Torrance. Is, huh. is the Jack Nicholson character? So it seems it seems to me that, that in that film, probably more than any, Kubrick says the American dream is dead. Um, I, I've I've always wanted to make the argument that all of this is under the umbrella, again, because I want to read this as a as a kind of quasi Marxist interpretation. Uh, that all of this is under the umbrella of a kind of uh, uh, of a kind of patriarchal capitalism that's at work at the hotel and that's the reason why the hotel is attracted to Jack and not to Wendy and not to Halloran and not to Danny because what do what do these three people represent well <laughs> one is an African American the other one's a woman and the other one's a child I mean that this hotel goes to the only white male that's available there is is interesting, and 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 not and not insignificant. Critic Keith Ulick. You probably write reams about Scatman Crothers and how and how crazy 
nuts Kubert treated him and, and what that means to the film and you know and the and, and the and the idea of, of blackness and in, in The Shining. Time Out New York critic Keith Ulick. You know, like when you see Scotland Crothers in that room with the naked Afro women paintings around him. It's kind of like, what does this mean? I'm still not sure what it means. If, it's, if, there, if there's like some critique of racism going on here, is it playing on some kind of idea of blackness and the black mystic? You know, or, or whatever, or, or or the holy or the holy black man. You know, in 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 there, and of course, then the ultimate cruelty. I mean, I, I honestly, the death that you, I think, you feel most in The Shining is Scatman Crothers' death, which mm-hmm. which really makes it interesting. You know, too, in terms of like a, a race reading of the film, because that's that, you know, it's kind of like here's a man who's in a role that you kind of I think would be conditioned to believe is the uh, the, the heavenly Negro who will come and save the, the the white boy with the powers and everything, and yet then, and I think I think it's actually a difference from the the book. I think uh, Dick Halloran survives in the book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yeah. Uh, but no, Kubrick has him like you know he comes and he's like hello anybody here hello and it goes on agonizingly to the point that it's ridiculous at a certain at a certain point, and then Nicholson just jumps out with the actual <laughs> like takes him down. And it's kind of like, and it's kind of like that might be the moment when Dick Halloran becomes effectively human, and you feel it. Yeah. You know, so you yeah. can write a whole race commentary on The Shining and what it's doing, and there's pro- and you could probably find problematic aspects. I mean, if you got someone like Bell Hooks to kind of, you know, exercise that side of it, I'm sure you'd come up with some some really interesting insights into that. You know, it's just just in terms of is there a racist element to it, or is there something that's that, that that's making it, you know, more human here. And if you imagine that this is all kind of like, in some sense, Jack Jack Torrance's subconscious, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it is addressing something within him, something unspoken within him that Grady is now, you know, you know, coming out the the previous caretaker, even though he's saying, well, Mr. Torrance, you've always been the caretaker, so then have you always been me? You know, it's kind of like there's this there's this line of thinking that's being Many of the film's initial audiences saw a slightly different version of the film than the majority. That's because Kubrick shot a four-minute epilogue that he quickly decided to excise during opening weekend. Film critic Glenn Kinney and film professor Steve Mamber. One day only, the opening day in American theaters, there was about a four-minute scene that took place in the uh, hospital. It was a visit by uh, Oldman, the hotel manager, to uh, the hospital where uh, the Shelley Duvall character was uh, staying in a room. He visits uh, Wendy Torrance in the hospital and tells her that all the things that she and the audience saw, the blood coming out of the elevators, the... uh, the men in costume doing dirty things to each other, uh, the whole manifestation of the uh, 1920s version of the Overlook. Uh, there's no physical evidence that any of that happened. And uh, uh, he tries to very nicely uh, assure her that essentially what she saw was an hallucination. She's completely spaced out and not moving, and all she does is kind of stare out into space. You know, it's one of those great uh, Kubrick kind of looks of a, of a, of a character's eyes like practically going up into their head. But what made it really interesting is that uh, while he's talking to her, you hear this ball bouncing against the wall. 
And uh, after he uh, does his little speech to her, you cut to the hallway uh, in the hospital there outside the room, and there's little Danny throwing a ball against uh, the wall, just like uh, Jack kept doing. And uh, I think what's uh, clearly implied is that uh, little Danny's going to someday get his turn, and he's going to mm-hmm. wind up, you know, back uh, uh, back there again. So uh, it it is it uh, repeats the, the very important Kubrick uh, motif of uh, kind of ironic cyclical rebirth. And apparently, Kubrick decided that scene was not necessary. That 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 in itself spelled things out uh, too much. And uh, you know, that evening, uh, a Warner Brothers representative with a some scotch tape and a razor blade went and cut that out and it was gone and it's never been put it's never been put in as an extra on the DVD version it's never been restored and it probably never was uh, never will be restored it will never be seen Steadicam inventor Garrett Brown the stuff I ever shot never ended up in the movie there's a whole sequence in a hospital Shelley in the hospital would be shot in Hampstead uh, after the last thing that I shot on the picture and was only in the film for the very first screening in New York. It was cut out immediately. I think that was the closing just, scene, wasn't it? It was, and somebody made fun of it and it disappeared. The deleted scene may be one piece of the puzzle which will likely never see the light of day. But fans of the film continue to seek out new avenues in which to explore the maze that is The Shining. Take the efforts of film analyst John Fell Ryan. In a practice known as radical projection, Ryan screened two copies of the film, side by side, one playing backwards and one playing forwards. His discovery shed light on the parallel relationship between the film's two halves. The last image is of the the, uh, inscription Overlook Hotel, July 4th Ball, 1921. And the first image is of the mirrored lake. In the superimposition, it becomes like a postcard invitation. And uh, then the road, the road uh, spirals through Jack's head. And so we understand that, in the superimposition, we understand that this is a journey into Jack's mind. Hmm. Other great things, like, like the interview takes place while he's having his you know, axe-murdering fit. And his family is leaving in the snow cat while he's arriving at the interview. When Danny is discussing with Tony his trepidation about going to the hotel, we see the infamous dogman shot underlying that Danny's fear is of a you know sexual nature. And this is underlined that Danny's visions um, in the forwards version are overlapped with Wendy, with images of Wendy, so that he his fear is also you know strongly connected to his mother. Yeah. Mm. Superimposition is a great shot where he's lying in bed being examined by the doctor and superimposed over his over his uh, head is his screaming face. <laughs> wow! Through that whole scene, he's screaming. Like when when uh, Jack meets the manager and his assistant in the lobby in the first day of work, murder is written over over them. 
meeting for the uh, for the first time, like, as if that that's their ulterior motive. As they tour the Colorado Lounge, uh, and the manager is espousing sort of the elitist nature of the hotel. Um, Danny is is busy writing red rum on the wall. While most audiences consider The Shining a straightforward horror film, curious inconsistencies and subtle visual tells indicate that there is so much more than meets the eye. For instance, the black teddy bear with the red vest, which rests at Jack's feet as he tosses the tennis ball near the beginning of the film, and how that mirrors the exact spot where a bloodied Holleran lies dying near the conclusion. Mirrors dominate the film. A particularly telling illustration may be the scene where Jack first travels down the hall to the gold ballroom. The hall is decorated with four large mirrors. Whenever Jack passes each of them, he incurs a violent physical reaction. Upon close inspection, you can find many errors in continuity. But could they be intentional? After all, Kubrick was a perfectionist. Here's one example. Why is Jack one month off when he tells Lloyd how long he's been on the wagon? Lapses in continuity aside, what is Jack holding in his hand in that final framed photo? The ambiguity of Kubrick's films had always left them open to diverse interpretations, but The Shining, as it has proven during the decades since its release, is particularly fascinating in the varied and oftentimes outrageous speculations it inspires. At times, it seems that diehard Kubrick fans have used The Shining to hang their metaphors of choice. Kubrick's closest confidants and many Kubrick fans have vehemently denied that Kubrick had any ulterior agenda other than to make an extremely effective scary movie. When we aired the initial version of this episode ten years ago, the conspiracies surrounding The Shining were not yet widespread amongst the public. In fact, the documentary that propagated many of these theories, Room 237, was still two years away from release, but we were honored to be joined by that film's director and producer during their pre-production of the film. After the episode aired, we received many irate, and sometimes threatening emails from fans that felt that we were somehow sullying the reputation of their beloved film. Our intention in including these insights from various journalists, authors, and filmmakers was not to endorse any specific theory about The Shining, but merely to illustrate how people view and interpret films through the prism of their own experiences and obsessions, and how the open-endedness of Kubrick's masterpiece provided an ideal platform for them to do just that. While some of these theories can fall into the category of eye-rolling conspiracy, we believe that most of what you're about to hear are merely expressions of subtext, an essential tool that many filmmakers employ during the creative process. We begin with ABC News reporter Bill Blakemore. He was one of the first to offer an alternate interpretation of the film, in 1987, as Kubrick was releasing Full Metal Jacket, Blakemore penned an article that speculated that The Shining was actually a metaphor for the genocide of the American Indians. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. 
where, uh, among other things, the Calumet City and Calumet River are just to the south. And Calumet is the French word for peace pipe, the first French explorer's word for peace pipe. And, the, and Lake Michigan there was first explored by French uh, uh, explorers before the, the uh, British, I believe. When I was a kid uh, spending summers in the sand dunes of western Michigan, my dad took my sister and me out um, when we were about 10 to, to find, as he'd heard we would, and we did little pieces of Indian pottery. So early on I was aware um, of the genocide of the Indians. And then I became a, a journalist in the Middle East. Um, uh, in high school I learned about the horrors of the Holocaust in the 1950s, Red Anne Frank. Then I came to cover wars in the Middle East and... Uh, 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 the, the Israelis, the Palestinians, the horrors of what had come out of Christendom for all of the Jews, the horrors of other genocides, and, and there, of course, have been five of them since the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust. Mm. It's something our species does. Anyway, it was 1980. I was with um, three friends. Uh, I was based in Beirut. We went to see this new Kubrick movie, and I already knew that he was... Uh, 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 the greatest kind of artist uh, ever since uh, 2001 came out. Uh, I'd realized this. I was terrified by the movie. I went in intentionally knowing nothing about it. I hadn't read the King book. I uh, I, I gripped the belt buckle of my of, of my belt during it. I was so frightened I might fall off my seat for terror. I was really frightened by the movie. Uh, and when it was over. And the four of us were driving up out of the underground parking lot. I remember I said, I suddenly said to my, my friends, that movie was about the genocide of the American Indians. And they said, what are you talking about? And then I mentioned the Calumet baking soda can in its first appearance. I hadn't yet realized the second appearance of them. That appears on the shelf right behind Halloran's head from Danny's point of view, straight on. You can read the full word Calumet at the moment that in the, moment of astonishing cinematic beauty when when Halloran, while still talking to Wendy, turns down and looks down at Danny and shines. How do you like some ice cream, Doc? There's serious symbolism going on here. Um, and this was later confirmed by his co-writer uh, uh, that this Indian stuff was all quite intentional. In fact, in one of the books um, of Kubrick, you can see there's a photograph that is described as Stanley Kubrick carefully arranging items on the shelves in the in the cold locker room there. Um, I went back and saw the movie again very soon after that and saw that there's a second time when he's, uh, when Jack is in the uh, cold storage locker room when he is uh, talking through the door to the ghost um, of Grady. And behind Jack's head in that scene, there's about seven or eight, I don't forget exactly how many of these Calumet baking powder cans, none of them straight on. To me, these represent the dishonest treaties between white men and, and, and what we know happened uh, with the, the, the horrible urges in, in the forces that uh, overswept Native America. That first screening, when I you know, caught my breath and was sort of, my, my heart stopped racing when we were coming back out of that garage, I remembered that Jack, that great shot behind Jack where he is throwing the ball so insensitively up against the wall against the, the, mm -hmm. the Indian motifs, and I remembered noticing that there was American Indian motifs on one or two of the bits of uh, clothing that uh, that Wendy's wearing. Kubrick is so great an artist that he is trying to boil down, I believe, in everything he possibly can, exhausting his sense of reality as seen through 
the prism of a horror movie and thus conquering the genre at the same time. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. The Shining is full of mute evidence, or rather nonverbal reference to the genocide of the American Indians and to American history. Here's what I rather suspect Kubrick may have meant as he discovered what this movie might do, since it is also a movie about our denial, our inability to see it. Um, he's even playing with us when he has Jack say straight into the camera talking uh, to Lloyd, the bartender, kind of slow tonight, isn't it? And as Kubrick said, the, the longest lines are not always outside the best restaurants. Mm -hmm. I rather suspect that once you, after you see the movie, if you're lucky enough to see it the first time without knowing any of this, and you see it cold and innocent and get terrified by it and experience the terror that, that the little family in the hotel experiences, not knowing quite why you're scared, and then go back and come to realize little by little that it's a movie about the horrors of genocide, the horrors of empire sweeping across, uh, driven partly by extractive industries going after gold, the gold room, the cold room, that G is sort of written like a C in the movie. You can then go back and see the movie again knowing both levels because you can remember the horror you first felt at each scene. Mm -hmm. And now realize, as you're watching it another time, that this is um, emblematic of or representative of or a tiny microcosmic version of actual horrors that happened um, to, to the Indians and others. Mm. You can make the connection, in a way, in your own memory of your first viewing of the movie. And Kubrick has done something astonishing there, because, of course, it's impossible for any one individual to feel the horrors of an entire race being hounded to death like the American Indians were or like the Jews in the Holocaust or the victims of any of the other five genocides since the Holocaust. An individual can't do that. But an individual who has seen this movie, been terrified the first time when you see it innocently and goes sees it again, realizes what it's about and remembers that horror the first time, it's a pretty close proximity to beginning to feel the horror. And, yeah. and Kubrick, remember, was later worked a long time on a movie about the Holocaust, uh, and then finally said, um, when when Steven uh, Spielberg's uh, Schindler's List came out, well, I guess I won't have to do it now because that's come out and it's sort of changed the general thinking about it. But there are one or, there's at least one academic now, a fellow, I read this book a few years ago, who's writing at the universe, one of the universities in Michigan, I forget exactly where, who says in his book uh, about Kubrick, he says, he tells that story I just told and says, but actually Kubrick had already made his Holocaust movie. It's The Shining. The book that links the themes of The Shining to the horrors of the Holocaust is titled Wolf at the Door, and its author is Jeffrey Cox. I think Blakemore was absolutely right, and I think that shows that Kubrick, as usual, is concerned about organized violence, especially in the modern world, where the state can become this powerful force for evil, and which is, you know, the power of the state only magnifies the inherent evil that Kubrick sees in human beings generally.
the ad was of the elevator doors sliding open and that mass of blood flowing out, and that struck me. It did the job that ads are supposed to do. It got my attention. And so I went and saw the film, and I was disappointed. I thought, well, gosh, that was it wasn't scary. It was interesting in some ways, but my initial reaction was not his best work. But there was always something that, drew me back to it. it. I kept thinking about the film and even dreaming about it. And I've had other colleagues of mine who had the same reaction, is that their first impression was negative, but the film just would not leave them alone. And so I went back to see it again and again and again. And I began to see what you always see in Kubrick films, all these little details with which he fills his scenes. And they keep popping up. I had a person write me a couple of weeks ago saying, did you know that in The Shining, on the bulletin board next to the phone when Wendy is calling the ranger's office, there's a little sign that says, I scream, E-Y-E-S-C-R-E-A-M. And so if you Google that, you'll find that it's a Freudian term, which means the fear of being pierced in the eye by a sharp, sharp object. Just a little detail like that, and you wonder, why is that there? And in terms of The Shining, it struck me that obviously Danny is seeing things. He sees into the past and into the future through his mind, but it's very much a question about witnessing and, be, and, and seeing visions of what the world has been like and is like and will continue to be like. And there's a motif here of eyes and seeing and having one's eyes Open. So that little sign on that bulletin board is another very subliminal message that says eyes and screams and terror and horror. Uh, after Danny is examined by the pediatrician, he's passed out after seeing his first vision of the Overlook's horrors, the pediatrician and his mother, Wendy, leave the room. They're going to go talk, and he's supposed to stay in bed. Shall we go into the living room? Yes. And on his door are, as you'd expect to find on a child's room door, all sorts of cartoon characters. And what's interesting about the shot as Wendy and the pediatrician leave the room is that it's quite apparent that there has been what you might otherwise think is a continuity error. One of the cartoon characters is missing. It's quite obvious. There's a big space where before there was a cartoon character. And we know that because when Danny is in the bathroom about to have his first vision of the elevator doors and the Overlook Hotel and what's in store for them and what the world is really like, the camera tracks in slowly from inside Danny's room toward the bathroom. And it goes by the door on the left, and you see all the cartoon characters. And on, right on the edge of the door, the last cartoon character you can see is the one that's missing. And it's Dopey from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And clearly, unless it is a continuity error, which I doubt, Kubrick has removed it because what he's representing there, again, at a very subliminal Freudian level, out of the corner of your eye sort of thing, is that Danny is no longer as innocent. He didn't know before. Dopey doesn't know anything. And now he does know something. And then, as 
Wendy and the pediatrician move down the hall toward the living room to talk about Danny. There's a shot from the end of the hall, and they approach, and you can see into what is clearly Jack and Wendy's bedroom. And on the wall, on the bedroom, way in the background, and of course it's in focus because Kubrick was a master of that sort of thing, deep focus, so he could put lots of things in the background that you could see. There's a big poster on the wall, or I guess it's a painting, and it's a painting that was very popular back in the 1970s. They were called Big-Eyed Children, and they were these cute, kitschy drawings of cute children that had huge eyes. And there's that. And again, it reinforces the idea of eyes and seeing and suddenly having one's eyes opened, as it were. So constant little details like that underscore this motif of a child discovering a very dangerous, what Dana Paulin, another scholar on Kubrick, has called a dangerous found world. And I think you find that as a, there's a, a major theme, if you could even argue it's the major theme in most of his films, and that is the phenomenon of a child or a young person finding out about all the horrors of the world. There's a, a very moving line in Steven Spielberg's Artificial Intelligence, which, of course, he took over from Kubrick and made into a film, mm-hmm. And when Monica abandons the robot boy in the forest, she says, she cries to him as she's driving off, I'm sorry I didn't tell you about the world and how all the horrors in it. And if you look at The Shining and other films, especially in the 70s, A Clockwork Orange and A Barry Lyndon, the motif is one of, in the case of The Shining, a child, in the case of Barry Lyndon, a young man, in the case of Clockwork Orange, a teenager, a 15-year-old boy, uh, discovering the world, and it's a world of evil, evil and danger. And so that sort of motif is one of the reasons I think The Shining in particular was Kubrick's main vehicle in terms of making the Holocaust film he otherwise didn't make. Now, as far as the... Holocaust specifically goes, this gradually dawned on me as I saw all sorts of things that were specific to that time period and to the nature of the horror that the Nazis perpetrated by means of the so-called final solution. Hi, hon. How's it going? Jack's typewriter, a German machine, Adler, which means eagle, and Kubrick very often in his films would use the eagle as a representation of dangerous state power. The thing that I think really clinches it for me, if if it weren't there, I would be much less sure about my thesis, and that is the constant repetition of the number 42. And mm-hmm. 42 is a number that in many ways in the history of the Holocaust is associated with the final solution because it was in January of 1942 that the Nazis all gathered and Reinhard Heydrich told all these other top Nazis in effect that Hitler had said we're going to do this, we're going to kill them all and here's how we're going to do it. And so the fact that 42 keeps popping up throughout that film is can't be an accident. There can't be that many accidents. 
it's clearly part of a pattern of reference. And then if you go back into Kubrick's own cinema, and you go back all the way to Lolita, you find out that Vladimir Nabokov, in his novel, used the number 42 as something that would pop up in the life of Humbert Humbert. Everywhere he went was the number 42. It, it would be an address. It would be a hotel room number. It would be a highway sign number. And Nabokov used 42 as a symbol of the sort of malevolent fate that was stalking Humbert and also of his own paranoia. And although Kubrick doesn't make anything of it in his own film of Lolita, he only mentions 42 once visually, I think that stayed with him. Um, as in King's novel, the Overlook Hotel uh, was built in 1907. There's, of course, also the 1921 party that makes an appearance in the film and is, of course, the venue for Jack being in that photograph at the end of the film, 21 being three times seven, of course. Um, Danny's uh, jersey yes. uh, that he's wearing. That they're watching the summer of 42 yes. uh, on TV. Well, right. Isn't there isn't there something like multiples of the room number? I mean, there, oh, yes, some... that's right. Uh, this is a little bit one-off. In the novel, the room where the Grady girls are murdered is, or where the Grady, where the, where the woman in the bathtub can be found, um, mm -hmm. is 217, and Kubrick changes that to 237. And actually, this was a, a student of mine in a course that said that, well, you know, if you're looking for the number 42, the product of 2 and 3 and 7, if you multiply those numbers, is 42. Now, Kubrick said, that he had to change the number because the owners of the Timberline Lodge, where the second unit work is done, that's where they show the when the that's where the exteriors of the hotel are shot. Um, according to Kubrick, the owners of the Timberline Lodge didn't want people to be afraid of staying in their room 217, and so they made that a condition of him using the over uh, using the timber line, and that makes sense, and so he changed it to 237. Now the question is, why 237? He could have chosen any other number, um, and it is true, as you note, that one can get 42 out of two and three and seven, and since there is a pattern of multiples of seven in the film. Uh, it would be consistent with that pattern. And I wouldn't be at all surprised that Kubrick very consciously thought, well, that's another place where I can bury this reference to the ultimate horror that underscores all the horrors in the Overlook Hotel. Because quite clearly the Overlook Hotel is a typical Kubrick high space of cold, malevolent danger. It is a symbol of incredible earthly power. And it's very high up. It's literally at the top of the world, and it overlooks everyone. And overlook has many meanings, meaning to supervise or, or to control and so forth. And so it wouldn't be at all surprising that Kubrick uses that space as a space where the people, as in the actual story of The Shining, carry out murders uh, in defense of their position and out of the 
passions of their mind. Um, and there are lots of other things in the film. The music, a lot of the music um, has connections with the 1930s and 40s and with fascism and with Nazism. There's also uh, the, the scene that uh, uh, kind of gives gives your book its title. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> the, wolf at the, the Wolf at the Door that we haven't discussed yet and the whole fairy tale of the three little pigs. Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff. And I'll puff. And I'll blow your house in. What Kubrick is doing there is showing that even in childhood stories, there are intimations, very clear intimations of the real dangerous world out there. Again, you have Kubrick there taking a genre, in this case the genre of childhood cartoons, and twisting, twisting this cartoon around to show that the cartoon itself, while light and entertaining and not dangerous to anyone, uh, is in fact another indication of our consciousness of those things within us and around us that are antisocial and, and dangerous and malevolent. One of the more outlandish theories comes courtesy of filmmaker and author Jay Widener. Widener's take falls squarely in the camp of conspiracy, as he argues that within the framework of The Shining, Kubrick is admitting to his involvement in the faking of the Apollo moon landing. I just spent about 10 years uh, looking uh, through the Apollo archives with a fellow researcher named Richard Hoagland, uh, going through the NASA work and covering the moon landings, and I'd become extremely familiar with the NASA imagery. Um, and uh, there's always something peculiar about the Apollo photographs that, that always worried me, or kind of as a photographer and as a filmmaker, uh, it just seemed odd, uh, for one thing, how, how the co good the composition was, even though the astronauts couldn't see through the viewfinder of their Hasselblads. And yet the composition and the lighting was just first rate, almost like Stanley had done it, almost. And uh, then when I was watching the DVD of 2001 A Space Odyssey, I was about 10 minutes into it, watching the eight sequences, when um, and, and be very appreciative of, of how beautiful they were, and uh, Stanley's incredible front screen projection work on the eight scenes, when suddenly I realized that there was a fingerprint which had to be in a front screen projection scene. And that would be the, the separation line between the stage set and the background screen. That there, there was always this slight difference in texture. And that Set me, sent me back to the uh, Apollo archives because the same strange feelings, visual feelings that I got from the ape scenes I also had received when I went through the Apollo work, and that was the, a sense of unrealness. And one of the things that felt unreal 
was the incredible, not just the composition and the lighting of the Apollo photographs, which are really quite good, um, but the um, the strange uh, thing of everything being in focus, whether it be the mountains way behind the astronauts or all the way up to the visors on their helmets. Just like in the ape scenes, everything is in focus. Um, whether it be the club that the, the, the bone club that the ape uses, or, uh, all the way to the mountain, desert mountain behind him. And that's because everything is on a very close plane of focus in a front projection situation where the screen is literally right next, right behind the actor. And so there's a very small depth of field in that, and so everything kind of stays in focus. And then I realized how they had done the everything in focus bit and began going through the Apollo footage and realized that the telltale um, evidence was the separation line between the stage set and the background projected image. There was always a difference in ground texture, image texture, um, it exists in both in, in the Apollo footage and in the Kubrick footage, um, but the fact that the two, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey ran co-current with the Apollo program, the fact that Stanley Kubrick insisted that Eyes Wide Shut be released on the 30th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11, and a lot of other things, but most of the evidence that I have that uh, indicts Stanley as the person who did the moon landings is buried inside his very famous film, The Shining. I actually wanted you to articulate one point, um, one particular scene, uh, which is Danny uh, when he first approaches room 237 and how that parallels to, to this theory you've been describing. Yeah, I think that that's the scene that does it, actually. It's almost exactly ha uh, one hour into the film, Danny is playing uh, on the uh, oddly hexagonal-shaped carpet pattern with his trucks, if you remember. And um, and then, you know, in the scene, a ball suddenly rolls out of nowhere, a tennis ball, the ball that Jack Nicholson was throwing on the wall earlier that disappears into the hotel, finally reappears. Um, and the ball is echoing what the twin girls were saying earlier, which is, uh, do you want to play with us, Danny? And uh, it's a ball, and Danny decides that, yes, he does want to play. He stands up, he walks down the hallway to room 237, he opens up the, oh, the door is open, he, op he pushes it open, and then the scene fades out. Well, it's a crucial scene in the uh, movie, and uh, it's a crucial scene in my theory because uh, it explains just about what Stanley, everything that Stanley is trying to convey about what happened with the faking of the moon landings. And um, the first thing we note is the um, odd carpet pattern. Uh, um, I always wondered, you know, why, even after I'd figured out that, that the film was about faking of the Apollo moon landings, I could not figure out why the carpeting had this odd shape on it. Um, for some reason, thankfully, I Google imaged in the uh, landing strip where Apollo 11 and 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 took off um, a, a, a launch pad 39A um, at 
in, in Miami, and uh, whoa, I could not believe it, but uh, there the pattern, exactly, not exactly, but so closely emulated the pattern that was on the carpeting that Danny was sitting on that I really couldn't believe it, including the driveway. Uh, leading up to the uh, launch pad is exactly uh, exactly the same configuration as the bottom thing coming out of the hexagonal pattern in the, on the carpet. So Danny is playing. We see the, that there's a launch pad, and then of course Danny stands up, and we see his sweater after the ball is thrown. Danny stands up, and we see a crudely uh, sewn sweater which says Apollo 11 on it with a rocket launching, and um, so, I mean, it's not even symbolic. Danny is a rocket who launches off the pad, and um, and, and the rocket is Apollo 11, and uh, it's pretty clear. And then Danny goes down the hallway, and he goes to room 237. At this point, when I'm watching uh, The Shining, my first time when I'm figuring this out, I've got my laptop on by this point, and I stop the movie, and somewhere in the dim recesses of my of my uh, education, I remember somewhere that the moon was 237,000 miles away, and I'd always remembered that because it was an it was an even number. In other words, it wasn't 237,180 or something. Hence, we now know why Kubrick changed the name to 237 to signify the symbolic distance that his fake rocket sitting on Danny's back would travel to get to the place where he would have to fake the landings, which was inside the room once they got to the moon, the fake moon. Now, all this may, you know, people may be saying, well, this guy is completely out of his mind and all that, but I beg <laughs> you to watch the film and see it because it's pretty unreal. But the most unreal thing of all is that Kubrick puts a, a key tag on the key sitting in the doorknob of room 237. Of course, it says room number 237 on it. But he has room with R-R-R-O-M with large letters, and then he has the old uh, European-style uh, word number which for N-O, which we don't use anymore, and that has a large N and a small O, and then the number is 237. Well, if you take just the, number, the letters that are capitalized on that key tag, R-O-O-M and the N, and you try to make all the English words that you can out of it, you're only going to get two words. Well, you get more, but that's a, that's a noun, so that doesn't count, but, uh, a pronoun. But the two words that you get are moon and room, and you can't get any other words. This isn't meant as a slight to Mr. Widener, but at this point, it should be noted that moon and room aren't the only two words you can form from the letters provided by that key tag. There's also the word moron. And that is, that is it. It's the moon room. It's the moon room. It's the fake room where he does the faking of the moon launch. And this is sealed later when, again, kind of defying the novel, Jack Nicholson completely denies that anything is going on in room 237 to, to Wendy. Um, and this goes forth when, when uh, the, the great scene, the culminating scene where uh, Wendy discovers uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, the novel that Jack Torrance is writing, and she's anxious to read it, and he's working in his secret room where she's not allowed to be in, 
on it, and she's not allowed to know what he's working on, so she has to sneak into the room. She sneaks into the room, and she finds, of course, that he's just in the room writing the same sentence over and over, all work and no play, makes Jack a, a dull boy. However, <laughs> the fonts that he chooses to use on the typewriter uh, makes the all, the word all, also appear to look like A11. And then you can realize that he's saying, A11 work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. A11 is the um, term, the euphemistic term that they used for Apollo 11. At that point, Jack Nicholson confronts Shelley Duvall, or I mean Wendy, uh, played by Shelley Duvall, and then uh, the whole crux of everything is revealed when he um, begins taunting her with... And are you concerned about me? <laughs> of course I am! Of course you are! Have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Oh, Dick, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Has it ever occurred to you that I have agreed to look after the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract, in which I have accepted that responsibility? You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? He is going to honor this agreement even if it means the death of Danny. What The Shining is, on, 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 the Shining is about 25 different movies, and this also was done on purpose. But what it was doing on one level was um, using subliminal in imagery to tell a very disturbing story. And um, he's doing it throughout The Shining. Um, he's lining shots up so that there's one frame in the shot where something happens, where an alignment occurs. And in that alignment, you get another paragraph in the story. And he's doing it continuously throughout the film. And he's airbrushing, I think, subliminal images into the films, including pictures of himself. And um, he's, uh, that's, that's one level, okay? He's doing a whole subliminal seduction. He'd read O'Brien's books in the 70s. There's no doubt about it. And he's using the methods that the advertisers were using that O'Brien exposed in his books of using sexual imagery buried underneath the um, upper layer of advertising imagery. So there's, you know, penises in the ice cubes and women's breasts in the glass of tonic. And, 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 and this is all, they're really doing this. And Kubrick knew it, and he added it into The Shining. And this is the reason why The Shining is so creepy, because there is a lot of seriously perverted sex going on in front of you and you don't even know it. The one moment that struck me was he's in the waiting room in the lobby, which I thought was such do you a want, odd... really, Do you want to go into that? I mean, if... <laughs> <laughs> you, want, you really want to go into that? If, I mean, I mean, because been... Playgirl magazine was read, it was well known in the 70s that Playgirl magazine was not read by women. Yeah, men, they went to newsstands that said that they never, they, women never bought it, but men bought it all the time. Jack Nicholson, I contend to you, is gay in the film. 
He's not only gay, um, the only person in the family that he's attracted to is Danny. Well, the scene with Danny and Jack uh, in the bedroom, when he goes to get the fire truck, there's, there's all these strange allusions, all right? Fire, there's only two words in the world in the English language that begin with F and end with U-C-K, okay? The one is a rather famous word, and the other one is fire truck, okay? Now, Danny has an obsession with the fire trucks in the bedroom, <clears throat> right? Mm-hmm. And later, when they're watching the Roadrunner cartoon, uh, Wendy and Danny, if you look in the corner of the background, you'll see that the teddy bear is in the corner with the fire truck in front of it. And um, I'm going to try and be nice here. But the way the shot is lined up, the teddy bear is um, sexually turned on. And the image that makes that happen is the ladder of the fire truck, and it's in a perfect position to give the bear a you-know-what. So <laughs> you, you look at this, and you can see that there's, this is only the beginning. Is The Shining a parable for the Holocaust, the genocide of the American Indian, the faking of the moon landing, or is it the ultimate depiction of the creative process of a failed marriage, or the cancer of racism, or the dominance of the white man, or the American male in general. Maybe it's intended to be all of these things, or maybe it's none of them. But how many films have inspired this degree of speculative interpretation? These theories inspired the documentary Room 237 from director Rodney Asher and producer Tim Kirk. And it's a rabbit hole that provides few, if any, concrete answers. Let me ask you about a, a particular shot. Uh, this is the most uh, talked about and argued single shot. It lasts for maybe four or five seconds on screen. I think I know where you're going. Some people say it's, it's when Wendy uh, experiences her own shining and sees uh, kind of a rich aristocratic guy in a tuxedo on a bed and and someone, some people say in a bear costume, some people say in a pig costume, uh, you know, performing an act on that man. <laughs> uh, sure. What what does it mean? <laughs> I guess that's my question. Well, it's interesting. It's kind of I, I like that, that that scene in particular. I you know I'm, I'm, I, I'm just embarking on rereading the book. Um, is I, I believe that scene hap- is explained in the book. No, and that it's one of the things that happened at you know that crazy part that that in the in the in the book it was a costume party in 1945, not a um, um, July Fourth party in twenty in um in the twenties. Um, and what's interesting is like how many things that aren't in the book are sort of in the movie, but with sort of the connection severed. Depending on you know the theory that you're going with, you know the bear can represent. Um, I, there's one. There's a Cold War reading where the recurrence of bears throughout the movie are, ta- are talking about the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Yeah, if Jay Wiedner. Um, yeah, he finds that the the bear represents the Russian bear, and um, and symbolizes the uh, Cold War that was driving the um, the creation of the uh, Apollo. Uh, uh, Space program, and, and there's another, and there's a, and there's another theory that talks a lot about 
sort of Jack's sexuality. The conclusion of The Shining does not provide easy answers. Is Danny destined to return to the Overlook Hotel to battle the demons that could result from this traumatic experience? Or has his unique insight, his shining, into the heart of man's dark nature, inspired him to stop the cycle of violence for good? Author Jeffrey Cox. He was a modernist, and so modernists tend to think that if we're clear-eyed about dangers, maybe that very fact will help us mitigate the horror. Critic Tony Macklin. There's that hope, I guess, in, in that the sun will somehow, with his gift of shining, somehow prevail. Although in the world of Kubrick, it's, it's more you endure than, in, than you prevail. Yeah. But he, he is a man that is in, is in competition with his son, who has the shining. Jack, Nichol, Jack Torrance doesn't have it. And there's a, when he goes into the hedge, into his own mind, into his own madness, into his own surrender... It's very interesting that the boy, that Danny, retraces his steps. He doesn't go into the maze. He comes out of it, and he, he retains his humanity. ABC News journalist Bill Blakemore. I guess my question is, is it a hopeful film in the end? Because uh, what does it have to say about the sins of the father being passed to the son, and does Danny escape that in the end? Is that hopeful? Yes. Well, I mean... Of course, Kubrick has said, as soon as you can get your mind around it, um, around the horrors, that's hopeful. Now, Kubrick is going, I think, always for the most universal. Trying to, you see, this, this movie is itself a shining through the layers of history. When you see this movie, he knows that by universalizing what happens in history, he is seeing through the layers of history, like Danny does like Stanley Kubrick does, like this movie does. And in that sense, it's hopeful, because, I mean, I've always felt that Danny himself um, embodies um, Kubrick, and Kubrick knew that in a certain way Danny was a, a stand-in for him. There's that line in it where uh, Grady is, uh, the ghost Grady is talking to Jack in, the, in that red men's room, mm -hmm. and I think that's where this line comes out, and Jack says... You know, he's being informed by Grady that um, that his that his boy is out of control. I think he's and and, the, and I think he's you know, that he's trying to contact the cook or something. And and Jack says, I forget exactly the the words leading into it. Yes, he is. He's talking about his son Danny. Yes, he is. Is a very willful boy. Mm -hmm. Now that's a little resonant of things that were known of Kubrick from the beginning of his career making movies. So the hopefulness to that, that you refer to there, and I guess you get a sort of a sense of hope too, right? That yeah. Danny gets out, the mother and Danny get out, the, the primal child, uh, mother and child escape, uh, the men go nuts, the mother and child escape, because, I mean, Jack is in some ways the ultimate victim of the movie. I mean, let's not forget, it's at the end when even Wendy begins to see the ghosts who have done all of this, the last ghost she sees is of a very classically rich guy with a bald head with a tuxedo who's drunk in this party. And a, and a friend of mine who studied the psychology of war says the worst killing happens towards the end. There's this speeding up toward the end of this movie. And mm -hmm. she runs up to the top of the stairs trying to, catch, trying to get to Danny, who, who Jack is after. And there's this drunk guy with, with a, literally blood on his head, visual, mm -hmm. verbal pun, 
uh, holding out a, a little glass of whiskey or something, saying, great party, isn't it? Like he uh, stands in for all the best people who have come to this hotel, the magnates, the rich people who, who, who provided the money for the horrendous uh, genocidal armies pushing across and getting the land in, in the tragic beginnings of our, uh, the United States. Um, she, she sees the horrors. We see through all of the horrors at the end. The movie itself, Stanley Kubrick has allowed us, once we understand what the movie is really meditating upon, to see through all these horrors of mystery. And then this maze of America, which is represented by both the hotel itself, which is compared to the maze itself, the moral maze. Danny gets out by retracing his own steps, which I've always felt is sort of like a pun of, of acknowledging history. You know, retracing mm-hmm. your steps, seeing where you've been. Jack, who's a blundering idiot, just keeps going forward and freezes in it. And then they escape in that in the, in the snowcat. And Kubrick, very subtly, as the snowcat begins to make its way up to the road to make its way down the mountain, Kubrick moves a curtain of fog across it, as if to say to the audience at that moment, "If you all want to know what happens to Wendy and Danny, that's not what this movie's about." You can presume, if you want, that they're going to get out all right. We're going to go back, and I'm going to give you a last puzzle um, to walk out of the theater wondering about. And he zooms in slowly over that beautiful music back to the ball in the 1920s, and there's Jack at the beginning of it in the Overlook Ball 1921, and there's the last... He forces you all, as he does with many of his movies, he forces us to go out saying, what was that about? We ponder it. And, of course, the Overlook Ball, we overlook what we did to the Indians. It was not in July 4th, 1921, I think. It was not an Independence Day for the Indians. And so I think I'd love your question because that's exactly right. The hopefulness of it comes when he says, look, the child got away. The child who could see through the layers of history. And his mother caught up with him at the end. She started seeing all the ghosts of the past as well. They're very real. Mm -hmm. And the hopefulness is that he shows us. You can presume the mother and child got away. Let me just review briefly what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with our own history. You can see through history. And those are the ones who escape. Maybe the ending of The Shining is a rarity among Kubrick's filmography, in that it provides at least a glimmer of hope. Who knows, Kubrick might be saying. Maybe we're not all born to kill after all. Are gonna walk all over you. 